0: Scattered along the east coast of the United States, from Massachusetts down to the Gulf of Mexico, lies the wreckages of almost a dozen World War II German U-boats. How did they get there? Why are they there? What are their stories? Find out next on Forgotten History Nerds. What's up? my forgotten history nerds welcome back to the forgotten history nerds podcast where each week i'm going to be taking you on a special in-depth look at a place figure event custom or place that has largely been forgotten or neglected by the mainstream version of history that they taught you in school as always i am your historical host of this fine program mv Genzali. now for today's podcast I have a very, 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 very special piece of forgotten history to share with all of you. It'll be a massive treat for you and for me. I've been wanting to make a podcast about this topic for years now. If I sound a little bit too excited for this, it's because I am. I've always loved studying U boats. Maybe that's because I've always had this fascination for the deep ocean and, by extension, submarines. Maybe it's because I've always found myself enthralled by maritime history. I don't know. I liken my fascination with World War II German U-boats to a paleontologist's fascination with, say, a Carcharodontosaurus. Both could, and most certainly would, most certainly kill you if given the opportunity during their prime. Yet there exists a sense of, I don't know, captivation to them both. Anyways, this is the story of Operation Drumbeat, the Nazi Germany plan to attack the east coast of the United States with U-boats during the course of World War II. Now, as Americans, we tend to remember the Second World War as this foreign conflict of epic proportions that took place in these faraway lands. To us, Europe, Asia, and to a lesser extent within the public's knowledge, Africa, that we were militarily involved in. True, yes. But those aren't the only battlefronts of the war. It's called the World War for a reason, I should say. The United States played host to quite a number of armed conflicts during the war's course. Just naming a few examples off the top of my head, there's Operation Cherry Blossoms at night, which we will get to in due time in another podcast episode. There's the bombing of Elwood Oilfield, the bombing of Fort Stevens, and yes, of course, Operation Drumbeat. Now, World War II wrecks within the boundaries of the United States are surprisingly a bit more common than one would think. Once up in New Hampshire, I got to explore the remains of a World War II Douglas B-18 Bolo bomber plane that had crashed into the side of a mountain oh and that's not even the only world war ii plane wreckage in new england that you can go explore yeah those are stories for another day i keep getting ahead of myself i apologize they're not related to u-boat wrecks that's not what you're here for now is it let's start with some background on this operation okay during world war one over five 1,000 Allied ships were sunk and more than 15,000 people killed in U-boat attacks. In World War II, between 30,000 and 40,000 people are estimated to have been killed in U-boat attacks. U-boats frightened people. U-boats were the oceanic terror of the Allied forces. Quote, the only thing that ever really frightened me during the war was the U-boat peril, unquote. Those were the words of Winston Churchill. Now that fear, that violence, that danger, it wasn't just limited to the shores of Europe. After the United States had entered the war on the side of the Allies, the decision was made by the Germans to bring their submarine warfare to America's doorstep. Enter Operation Drumbeat. If you're curious as to why it's called Operation Drumbeat specifically, well, we have Carl Donuts. Yes, really, that's his last name who was the short-lived successor of Adolf Hitler after his suicide, who was, at the time of Operation Drumbeat, the leader of the German submarine division, to thank for coining its name. Well, er... Sort of. He initially called it Operation Kettle Drumbeat. Operation Drumbeat was essentially the Allied version of that name. The German name for it was Operation Poisslag. I apologize to any Germans if I butchered your language here. Anyway, it was also known by the name of the Second Happy Time. The first Happy Time, I assume you're wondering about, was in the latter half of 1940 when British vessels, mostly merchant ships, were the target of the U-boat's wrath. Perhaps most chilling of all, amongst the crews of the U-Boats involved, it was called the American Shooting Season. Under Donut's orders, the U-Boats involved were initially told to stay hidden and only attack when the element of surprise was in their favor. The ships they were supposed to target were supposed to be vessels of over 10,000 tons. A bunch of articles I read on the matter made a lot of mention of the tonnage of the ship sank. I'm probably not going to mention that at all, because instead, I'd like to talk about the lives lost in the attacks. Tonnage of ships can be replaced. Human lives can't be. U550 We begin our journey off the coast of my home state of Massachusetts, more specifically about 70 miles south of Nantucket Island, in a depth of about 300 or so feet of water, where we come across the remains of U-550, a Type 9 C-40 U-boat discovered during a 2012 expedition. If we want to tell its story, we have to go a little bit back, about 76 or so years back, to the date of April 16th, 1944, when it was sunk. On her first and only patrol, I might add, she was assigned to the United States East Coast, where on the aforementioned date, her crew had spotted a potential target in the Pan Pennsylvania, a U.S. tanker ship, one of the world's largest tanker ships at the time. Problem was that the Pan Pennsylvania was being escorted, albeit in a little bit in front of her by three to six destroyer escort ships in the USS Joyce, the USS Gandy, and the USS Peterson. Not something you'd want to pick a fight with, unless you were part of U-550's crew, that is. Unbelievably, that's exactly what they did and torpedoed the tanker. Little did they know that U-550 had just opened Pandora's box. You know how I just said that the Pennsylvania was being escorted by multiple, keyword here, multiple destroyer escorts? Yeah, so did the crew of 550. In an effort to hide herself from the nearby ally ships, U 550 hid under the Pennsylvania while it was kind of, you know, sinking down to the bottom of the ocean. I'm not sure if this was a smart thing or an idiotic thing to do. I mean, you're below a sinking ship and could easily get caught by the ship itself its wake or some degrees. All the while, the other allied ships know you're there somewhere. Then again, it could shield you effectively depending on what vantage point of the other ships had. Then again, again, this isn't for me to decide. I'm not a military expert. Oh, and this didn't work anyway. Hell itself rained down on the U-boat from all three destroyers in the form of bullets, shells, rammings, and depth charges oh my god the depth charges there were so many of them one of them according to a crewman from u-550 bounced off the u-boat's deck before promptly exploding try to picture seeing something like that in your mind for a second it's gotta be absolutely terrifying now during the commotion klaus harnett i think i'm pronouncing his name right the u-boat's captain attempted to climb up to the ship's observation deck with a white flag to surrender he was promptly shot by a shell it's likely that his gesture of surrender wasn't even noticed, because another gesture of surrender was quickly done by one of the sub's crew, and it was noticed immediately by those on board the USS Joyce. Immediately, they and the other allied ship ceased firing at the U-boat. U-550 was done for. Everybody knew it. She sank stern first into the waters of the Atlantic forever. At least 40 or so crewmen were observed to have entered the water. By my count, only 13 of them were were saved by the USS Joyce. Amongst them was Captain Klaus himself. Yeah, somehow he survived that. He wouldn't die until like 2003. There is another one of the survivors we should talk about, however. His name was Gunther heater, and unfortunately, he survived U-550's destruction. Now, I say unfortunately in the sense that this poor bastard was mortally wounded from the endeavor. For 20 days, the young man painfully struggled for his life, until on May 6, 1944, at Newport Hospital, where he would succumb to his wounds... He was only 21 years old. That's a year younger than I am. That's fucking insane. I'm 22 years old, and I could never imagine being in command or even working in one of these things. Hell, earlier this year when I got to visit the USS Intrepid, it's a World War II aircraft carrier that's been turned into a museum ship. Really good, really, really good place. Recommend it. Anyway, the guy at the ship's helm told me that quite a number, quite a high number of officers and crew members working the ship during the war were 17 to 18 years old. When I was 17, I was a scared little high school student bagging groceries and worrying about acne. Fucking nuts. Anyways, back to our story. Heater was buried at Newport's Island Cemetery alongside a fence facing the street. Now, the other week, I actually took a trip down to Newport and got to see the cemetery with my own eyes. Heater's gravesite is such an odd sight. Around his is of the same shape and model tombstone, lies a few dozen servicemen from the United Kingdom, and the United States from World War II. Dozens of small American and British flags lay around the cemetery's plot, with just a singular odd small German flag at Heater's tombstone near the middle of that concoction. Oh, and during the destruction of U-550, I forgot to mention this, The Pan-Pennsylvania was still afloat. U-550 is credited with sinking it in a lot of things, but it's not necessarily the case. It didn't technically sink her. Well it did and it didn't. The Pennsylvania was critically damaged by the torpedo strike, but its main problem was that inside of the ship, it had partially caused a massive fire that burned throughout the ship, eating it alive. Another part of that fire was a stray ally shell hitting the Pennsylvania, It would soon capsize. Now, there was no saving it, so the nearby Allied ships attempted to sink it with gunfire. That didn't work, so a day or two later it was bombed from above by Allied aircraft. That's when the Pennsylvania sank to the bottom of the Atlantic. Twenty-five members of her crew had perished in the U-boat attack. Hey, while we're still on the subject of Massachusetts, and before I forget, if you'd like to see an authentic U-boat inside of the state of Massachusetts, Well, then I'm afraid you're kinda out of luck. There's hardly any intact U-boats left in the world, let alone this state. There is, however, a fully intact U-boat type 9C submarine in Chicago that you can go and visit. It's on my list. Anyway, there is... A conning tower of a Type 7 U-boat on public display at the American Heritage Museum in Hudson, Massachusetts. It is the only one of such pieces on display in the United States, though I should probably mention that this U-boat wasn't a part of Operation Drumbeat during its lifetime. Instead, it saw action and its eventual demise over in Eastern Europe, I have been lucky enough to get to see it myself twice now, and I've gotta say, it's up there as one of the coolest artifacts I've ever gotten to see, and I've seen thousands of artifacts. My fellow Forgotten History nerds, if you're ever in Massachusetts, please do yourself a favor and give this place a visit. Now, tickets cost about 25 bucks, but I assure you that their collection is worth every penny. One more thing about Massachusetts and U-boats. On January 12, 1942, off our blue Hill coast, I'll give you 10 non-existent points if you understand that reference. Anyways, on January 12, 1942, off the coast of Massachusetts, the Cyclops, a British naval vessel, was torpedoed by a U-boat and sank. At least 84 people are known to have perished in the attack. U853 On the 4th of May, 1945, the day before Germany had surrendered to the Allied forces, Karl Donitz had ordered all U-boats to cease their attacks on Allied ships. Well, he negotiated terms of surrender with Allied leaders. The war was effectively over, but to one Helmut Frommstorf, the commander of one U-853, the war was far from over. Now, there's no confirmation on whether or not Helmut had heard the order and just didn't care or never received the order entirely. Then again, it doesn't really matter now, does it? The result was the same either way. One last battle. The Battle of Point Judith. The date was May 5th, 1945, a day after Donuts' orders, when U-853 spotted the SS Black Point, a coal-carrying cargo ship, and torpedoed it. Within 15 minutes, the ship had sank beneath the waves of the Atlantic. 12 out of the ship's 46 strong crew members would lose their lives. Though, allow me to make one thing perfectly clear. To the crew of U-853, this was not a win. Essentially, U-853, with this torpedoing, had tugged on Superman's cape. Trouble was coming, and fast. News of a U-boat attack drove multiple ships in the area, including the destroyer ship the USS Erickson, the USS Amic, the USS Moderly, and the USS Atherton to the scene to look for and destroy the sub. The Battle of Point Judith as it's referred to lasted around 16 or so hours. Multiple times the U-boat in question would flee only to be located there shortly after. Hedgehogs and depth charges were the primary weapons used to put an end to 853. This was one of those situations where it wasn't decisively known if the U-boat had sunk or not. So for a while, It was decided to just continuously attack before it was confirmed to have been destroyed. All 55 members of the submarine's crew were lost. Though, some did eventually make their way to the surface. This would mark the final or at least one of the final times that a U-boat was sunk by a United States Navy ship. Here's a few fun tidbits regarding the story of U-853. At one point during her career, U-853 encountered the RMS Queen Mary, mm-hmm that RMS Queen Mary she was gonna fire at her. She was only stopped, however after the Queen Mary outmatched the U-boat speed and sped away from the danger. At the time U-853 had its own fight to deal with where it was attacked by an allied aircraft or at least a couple of them, from what I've heard. Here's another fun tidbit. U853's emblem was that of a horse. And another, due to her notorious elusiveness, U853 was nicknamed Moby Dick by the crew of the HMS Fencer, who spent weeks searching for it. Here's one more for you, and it's a bit of a sad one, so brace yourselves. On April 23, 1945, not too long before her own demise, U-853 torpedoed the naval vessel the USS Eagle Boat 56 near the coast of Portland, Maine. It promptly sank, taking the lives of 49 out of her 62 crew members with her. For quite a long time... The Navy classified the cause of that sinking as that of a boiler issue until relatively recently. Oh, and they found the wreck a few years ago, I want to say 2018, off the coast of Portland in like 300 feet of water. Anywho, back to the present day remains of U-853. The wreckage of U-853 was found laying in 130 feet of water by the crew of the recovery vessel the USS Penguin a couple hours after the sinking. About six or so miles away from the wreckage lies its adversary, the Black Point. Both rivals forever doomed to lay at the bottom of the Atlantic, sad reminders of all the lives lost. I have heard rumors that they were there looking for the Enigma machine of the vessel. The Enigma machine was a spy tool that the Germans used in those days to encrypt their messages. It was notoriously hard to crack, though eventually the Allies got that done. Anyways, I could not find a strong enough source to confirm this as fact. That's why I'm saying rumor. I do know that they were there searching for Helmont from Frumstorf safe for the documents stored within it. Ultimately, they were unable to find anything along those lines, and I should mention that at the time this was a controversial thing. Essentially, it was looked at by some as grave robbing slash disturbing. In the years since, the wreckage has become a decently popular spot for diving. Wanna hear something creepy about that? At one point, divers visiting the wreckage could actually see the skeleton of crew members who never left U-853 through the various holes in the wreck's hull, many of which were eventually welded shut by the US Navy after grave robbers began stealing the bones of crew members. Freaky, eh? It gets even creepier. I know of at least, I'm pretty sure, four people who dived down to the wreck and perished themselves. In 2000, the wreck was visited by a man named Ricardo McKeithen. During the dive, he would lose his life. I couldn't find any specific details as to the circumstances. In 2005, while filming a documentary about U-853, local diving instructor Stephen Hardick drowned due to health issues. He was 61 years old. In 1988, a man named Norman Tinibon dived down to the wreck site. All seemed well until he started for the surface. He passed away before he could surface from decompression sickness. He was 27 years old. Three years earlier, in July of 1985, Thomas Sorensen dived down to the wreck of U-853. Unfortunately, he quickly became entangled in an anchor line. After he cut himself loose, he made it to the surface. Too quickly. Deadly quickly. He was 49 years old. A lot of people don't realize there's still present danger from these things even if they can't fire any more torpedoes or lay any more mines. In the year 1960, there was a plan proposed to raise the wreckage of U-853 from a man named Burton Mason, He was the head of a submarine research firm in Connecticut. Mason's plan was to publicly display the U-boat's remains in a museum. If you could believe it, it wasn't really a popular idea. There was a lot of backlash on the project. Amongst them was the city of Newport, the state of Rhode Island, and just a little old West German government. In the end, Mason's plan never fell through to bring U-853 back to the surface, I couldn't find any definitive answer as to why, other than it just didn't happen. The West German government technically owned the wreck and threatened massive legal action against Mason for disturbing it. Mason, ever the respectable fellow, had this to say in response, quote, we're going right ahead. Whatever thunder they want to throw, let them throw it, unquote. Perhaps this man was crazy enough to try to raise the wreck and was stopped by the high costs such an expedition would generate. Anything submarine related is not cheap in the slightest. I couldn't find any specific details regarding the financial aspects of this expedition. So here's a fun tidbit about an expedition to recover artifacts from the Titanic's wreckage. Normally, that would cost hundreds of thousands of dollars a day. Here's another weird fact. Some halfwit dived down to the wreckage in 1959 or 1960 and removed the body from the wreckage. If you could believe it, the West German government was none too pleased at the disturbing of the war grave. The John Doe crew member's skeleton was taken to the aforementioned Island Cemetery in Newport, Rhode Island, where they were buried with full military honors on October 24th, 1960. A few weeks ago, when I visited the Island Cemetery, I also got to visit the grave of this unknown crew member. It's pretty close to the grave of Heater, maybe 30 feet away? If even that. Initially I had walked right past this thing. It is such an easy thing to miss. It's one of those small flat headstones, and it was all but covered by the leftover vegetation. Only thing me and my team member noticed that allowed us to find this thing was the little bit of the iron cross at the top of it sticking out. If you'd like to see a picture of it, I posted a picture of it and Heater's headstone on the Forgotten History Nerds Instagram page, u869. On the date of February 28th, 1945, just off the coast of Morocco's capital, U-869, a Type 9 U-boat, was sunk by the USS Fowler, a destroyer ship, and the French sub-chaser, El Indiscrent, through a series of depth-charge attacks. Little evidence, if any, was reported, alongside the claim of its sinking, but that was officially how the story of U-869 ended. That's what was reported to the friends and family members of the 55 men lost on board that U-boat. Until 46 years later, on the 2nd of September, 1991, where an interesting find was made just off the coast of New Jersey in around 230 feet of water by Captain Bill Nagel and his associate John Charlton remember that name. If we're talking specifics, I'd like to say it was around 60 or so miles east of Point Pleasant, New Jersey. It was a U-boat, that was for sure, but what it didn't have was a name. In place of any official name, it was unofficially nicknamed yoo In preparation for this episode, I found various reports initially claiming that its identity to be that of u 550 or u 521 the latter of which we'll talk about in a moment. Judging by both ships' last known coordinates, they couldn't have been our mysterious ship, as they were nowhere near these coordinates of where the wreckage was found of Yoo-Hoo The name U-869 was thought of, though initially discarded. A stainless steel knife with a wooden handle bearing the name Horenberg was found in the wreckage. Horenberg, more specifically Martin Horenberg, was the senior radio operator on board U-869. You'd think this would have confirmed or at least provided a strong clue on the ship's identity, yeah? Nope. As I said, this was quickly discarded. U-869 sank off the coast of Morocco. U-869 was told by Donuts himself to transport its operations from the North American coastline to the African coastline, despite no records ever being located in the vicinity of the coordinates that it allegedly sank in. Just over a year after the wreck was found, another clue as to its possible identity was uncovered. A schematic drawing of the submarine that proved our mystery ship was a Type 9C U-boat. It was also uncovered that this U-boat was built in the Deichmag facility in Bremen, Germany. Both of these things matched the known history of U-869, but alas its name was not yet known to the world. Almost six years to the day of its discovery, on August 31st, 1997, partially because of the aforementioned John Chatterton, a box was found in the wreckage bearing the name U-869. Yuhu finally had a name. Prior to its sinking, the former Yuhu played an inconsequential role in the quote-unquote second go-round, aka World War II. Across my research, I wasn't able to find a single record of U-869 ever sinking one ship. At the same time, I couldn't find any record of it ever suffering a single casualty. Well, er, prior up until its loss, that is. At some point near its final days, it was told to move away from the U.S. East Coast area to the North African West Coast by Carl Donuts. As for the cause of its sinking, if you're thinking that the U-869 was sunk in an awesome battle by a big allied ship, then I'm afraid that you might be quite disappointed. One of the most likely causes of the grisly fate that befell U-869 and her crew was one of her own malfunctioning torpedoes by many of those who found the wreckage as well. Another theory claims that U-869 was sunk in a hedgehog assault by two U.S. destroyer escort vessels in the Howard D. Crow and the Coiner on February 11, 1945. It is believed by those who were on board the aforementioned destroyer escorts and the United States Coast Guard. Our pal John Chatterson believed that both situations, one after another, caused the sub to sink. There was, however, one survivor of U-869 that did not go down with the ship to its mysterious fate. But, he does not have the answer we seek either. His name was Herbert Gusketskowy. Sorry if I butchered that name. He was a radio operator on board the ill-fated sub. At the time of whatever happened to U-869, he was not on board. A few days prior, he had been hospitalized with, as he puts it, quote, double-sided pneumonia and pelusi, unquote. He wrote a small but breathtakingly interesting article years after the fact in 2004 detailing his life a little bit there's also a short interview with him conducted by nova both of these things are pretty easy to find and it's so fascinating to hear him speak about his experiences and personal feelings Now for a little morbid part, I couldn't really find anything else about him or his modern whereabouts. I hate to say it, but at the time of his story coming out in 1999, he was already 78 years old. I think he'd be about 100 or something like that this year. Anyways back to our submarine. U-869 is still very much dangerous. There are no more torpedoes it can fire. No depth charges it can deploy. No mines it can release. The present danger that U-869 possesses. is. Is in the condition and location of its wreckage. In June of 1991, less than a year after the sub's discovery, a diver named Steve Feldman was killed while attempting to explore the wreckage. One of the sources I found claimed that strong currents had swept him away and built up a fatal amount of CO2 in his system. The next year, in 1992, the wreckage would claim two more victims. While searching for the wreckage of the ship's captain's log with his father, Chris Rouse, a young man by the name of Chrissy Rouse became trapped under some debris that had fallen on him. Yeah, things like this don't really tend to have the best structural integrity. Thus... Even going anywhere near it can be a dangerous affair, let alone in it. Anyways, his father, Chris, managed to free him after some doing on his part. Noticing that they were both very low on their air, they made the decision to ascend to the surface directly. Ascending to the surface so quickly caused them both to develop decompression sickness. Serious decompression sickness. Within 24 hours, they were both dead. A book was made about the fatal dive by a friend of the Rouse family named Bernie Chowdhury. It's called The Last Dive. A father and son's fatal descent into the ocean depths. And you can find this bad boy for sale on where else but Amazon.com. What doesn't Amazon sell? I've seen pieces of Berlin Wall for sale up on there. Anyways, I've never personally read it, so I can't recommend it. It is on my ever-growing reading list though, but it looks like a big fascinating read. Here's a fun little tidbit to close out this segment. The aforementioned knife, along with a crockery bowl found at the wreckage, was given to the family of Martin Horenberg. U352 In 1974, local diving instructor George Purifoy and his friends found quite the interesting little prize. About 26 miles south, off the coast of Moorhead City, North Carolina, located in about mm, 110 feet of water, we come to the remains of a Type 7 C U-boat in U352. Out of all the U-Boat wrecks I have mentioned so far and will come to mention in this podcast, the wreck of U-352 is the one you are most likely to find divers at due to its favorable conditions compared to its sunken contemporaries. Diving company Olympus, which was actually owned by Purifoy before his death in 2008, regularly visits the wreckage about two or three times every week. I have also heard that U352 has become quite the noted biodiversity hotspot since it's sinking. An artificial reef, if you will, with dozens of animal species regularly spotted at the wreck site, including lionfish. They're poisonous, they're an invasive species, yes, but man are they cool looking. Anyways, the wreck site was added to the National Register of Historic Places on November 12, 2015. Now, Under the brief history of U-Boat U-352, Helmont Rathk was its big head honcho. Now Rathk, according to one Heinz Richter, one of the subs firemen, was obsessed with capturing the Knight's Cross Meadow. Basically, it was a reward given to U-Boat crews slash captains, who sank over 100,000 tons worth of Allied ships. I've also heard that he was a very demanding man who grew more and more reckless as his obsession with achieving the medal skyrocketed. I looked pretty hard, but I couldn't find any record of U-352 sinking one ship. I know that at one brief point in its five-month run, it was part of a wolf pack. If you're unaware of what a wolf pack was, please allow me to quickly explain. A wolf pack was essentially a convoy submarine attack during the war. One U-boat is absolutely terrifying, but for multiple... I don't have a word to convey that level of fear. Anyways, I was able to find records of U-352 encountering two ships in battle. On May 5th, 1942, U-352 encountered a Swedish merchant vessel in the SS Freden. They fired two torpedoes at the ship that would both miss. The Freden's crew, on the other hand, were spooked. They knew that they had not been hit at all. Still, the order was made to abandon their ship. After nothing more happened, the Freedon's captain ordered everyone to return back to the ship. That's where the story ends, for the night anyway. The next day, both ships would meet once again. U-352 would again fire two torpedoes and miss completely. The crew of the Freedon feared for their lives again, and back into their lifeboats once again they went. The Freedon's captain ordered the vessel to turn as to its attempted attacker. Mr. Knight's cross man believed that the Freedon was escaping at its maximum speed. So, he called off the attempted attack. The next morning on May 7th, both ships would pass by one another again. Back in the lifeboats they went. (laughs) I'm just kidding. This time both ships let the other one go. Still quite a what the hell moment, huh? Anyways, fun tidbit that's not related to this. During their time alongside the east coast of the US, they had gone so close to shore that they were able to pick up American radio stations they were partial to jazz music. What interesting lives these fellows must have led, huh? Eh? Two days after their final encounter with the SS Freden on May 9th, 1942, at around 4pm, the story of U-352 would come to an end. The day it was spotted by the U.S. Coast Guard ship, the Icarus, U-352 fired at its target. The torpedo, did not make contact with the Icarus at all. They missed completely. The Icarus retaliated by dropping depth charges into the water. One or two of them, at least, partially struck the U-boat, damaging it. Instead of pursuing further evasive maneuvers, It was decided that U-352 would rest at the bottom for an extended period of time. You know, fool the Icarus crew into thinking they had won the battle and that the U-boat had been sunk. No dice, Chief. The Icarus continued dropping depth charges at the sub until it had to surface. During this time, Mr. Knight's Cross ordered an abandoned ship. As much of the crew was trying to make their way out of the submarine, the Icarus opened fire out of fear that the U-boat crew were attempting to fire at them through the conning tower's guns. This killed a fair amount of them, about 13 by my count. Mr. Knight's Cross was not a happy camper in the immediate aftermath of the U boat's destruction. He chastised his crew while they were waiting for rescue. Rescue would come a couple minutes later. Well, 45 minutes to an hour later, when the Icarus returned to pick up the survivors, 33 men were pulled from the water. One of them would perish that night on board the ship. The remaining 32 were taken in as POWs. I've heard that they were taken to the same facility that housed the prisoners of U-Boat 701. Speaking of, U-701. In 1989, U.A. Loves a computer support technician slash scuba diving enthusiast, would make the find of his life. About 115 feet below the surface of the Atlantic, near the coast of North Carolina's Cape Hatteras, rest the partially buried remains of the German U-boat U-701. During the days of Operation Drumbeat, U-701 was one of the very first U-boats sent to the U.S. East Coast, though it was involved in plenty of action all over the Atlantic. On January 6, 1942, British fishing trawler the Baron Eskire was sunk by one of U-701's torpedoes. All 41 members of her crew were lost in the attack. It was incorrectly reported that 34 people had survived, though past this date there is no record of any of them at all doing anything, so, you know. Two months to the day on March 6, 1942, U-701 struck again with another torpedo strike, this time sinking the Roina off the coast of Iceland. Much like the Baron, the Royna was another fishing ship. Once more, all on board the vessel were lost. The next day, the FV Nivagaberg don't even know if i'm pronouncing that one right anyway it was another fishing trawler and it would fall prey to a torpedo from u-701 and sink this time south of the icelandic coast it had a crew of 21 men on board at the time no one survived two days later still south of iceland's shores the british navy trawler the hmt knots county would be sunk by u-701's torpedo all 41 men on board the ship died in the attack Still south of Iceland's shores, on the date of March 11, 1942, British Navy trawler the HMT Stella Capella would meet its demise courtesy of one of U-701's torpedoes. Once again, there were no survivors out of the crew of 33 people. On the 15th of June, 1942... The British naval trawler, the HMT Kingston Saline, would sink after coming into contact with one of U 07's mines it had recently released, just off the coast of Virginia's originally named Virginia Beach. This time, thankfully, we had 14 survivors, though a further 18 men still perished, unfortunately. Those other mines the U boat had released on that day managed to strike, though not sink, multiple other ships in the USS Brannage, a destroyer ship. The Robert C. Tuttle, a tanker which was seriously damaged and people still did die on it because of the mine strike. The SO Augusta tanker was also struck by one of U-701's mines. Two days afterwards, on June 17th, 1942, the Santor, a U.S. cargo strip, three members of her 46-strong crew would perish in the attack. Insert another two-days-later card here. On June 19, 1942, the USS YP-389, a Navy patrol ship originally from my home state of Massachusetts, was sunk by a mine from 701. Interestingly enough, about a week or so before the two ships would encounter one another in the Chesapeake Bay, The reason why U-701 sank the patrol ship on the 19th was so that since it had already spotted it, it would not give away its location to other allied ships. The two vessels battled it out for hours, with U-701 ultimately becoming the victor. Six people on the USS YP-389 perished as a result of the sinking. This time, U-701 did not make it out of the battle completely unscathed, however. It suffered slight damage, though not serious damage, from its encounter with USS YP-389. The final ship to fall to U-701, the SS William Rockefeller, sank after it was struck by a torpedo that... 701 had fired. This was actually a bit of a major victory for the Rockefeller's crew. Here's what I mean. Not a single person on board that ship was killed. Not a single one of them. Though, this was especially a major victory for the crew of U-701. At the time, the SS William Rockefeller was one of the world's largest tanker ships. This reign of terror came to an end on the date of July 7th, 1942. At 1pm, just off the coast of Cape Hatteras, North Carolina. Remember that place's name. Anyways, when she surfaced, U-701 was struck by two bombs from a U.S. Air Force plane. She promptly sank, taking 26 crew members with her. 17 initially survived, though as the days adrift at sea afterwards continued, two I want to say that number is, whittled down to just seven survivors. This marked the first time that a German U-boat was sunk by a U.S. Air Force plane during World War II. U-701 also made some history in the sense that it was one of the few successful mining jobs in U.S. waters during the war. Sarcastic hooray here. Today the remains of U-701 is a popular diving spot. Previously, since UA Love Discovery, its coordinates were kept the secret for fear that people would do something stupid, as we learned with U-853, probably for the best, since people feel the need to desecrate everything, including war graves. Though, in my research, I didn't find any instances of someone defacing 701's wreckage. I don't scuba dive myself, but can you imagine being lucky enough to go down there and able to see one of these things as a diver? God, that's bucket list material right there. Anyway, next, U-576. In October of 2014, NOAA announced to the world that they had located the wreckage of a Type 7 U-boat, U-576, 30 miles off the coast of Orokoek, North Carolina, in about 690 to 700 feet of water. U576 was a sub that saw action all over the Atlantic world during the Second World War. I've traced records of her presence to the coasts of France, Norway, the Faroes, Nova Scotia, and yes, the United States. She conducted five Atlantic patrols with quite the bloody yet Oddly apologetic history in them. More on that in a second. Her first patrol was completely inconsequential to anything. Nothing really happened. Same goes for her second patrol. Her third patrol is where things start to get deadly. Valentine's Day 1942 would become a massacre for the crew of the British armed merchant ship the Empire Spring after being struck by one of U-576 torpedoes 50 miles shy of the coast of Sable Island. The torpedo strike caused a fire to burn through the ship. Not too long later, the spring had sunk, taking the lives of all 55 of her crew members on April twenty first, 1942. 400 miles east of Virginia's shores, another ship would meet its end at the hands of U-576, this time in the Pipestone County, which sank quickly after being hit by one of the sub's torpedoes. In terms of crew loss, it was also another clean sweep, though this time the shutout was for the survival rate. Every single person on board the Pipestone County made it safely into lifeboats. Next, something very strange happened. Hans Dieter Heineckel, the U-boat's captain, gave the survivors of the ship he had just sank supplies and even apologized to them. Nine days later, on April 30th, 1942, U-576 would strike one more time and sink the Norwegian cargo ship, the Tabarfjell with a torpedo strike less than 100 miles away from the Massachusetts shore. Like a light, the Tabarf gel fell under the waves of the Atlantic in under 60 seconds. Out of 20 crew members, three survived. The date of July thirteenth, 1942, was not a lucky or pleasant one for U-576. On this date, it would be bombed from above by Allied planes just off the coast of Cape Hatteras, North Carolina. They managed to escape... With a catch, the damage was severe. Her ballast tank, which for those of you unaware is what a sub uses to dive and surface, was critically damaged. Because of this, the U-boat's captain Heinkel decided to head back to Germany. However, they encountered a big problem on their way back. A convoy KS 520 with 24 ships level of. July fifteenth, nineteen forty two would be a busy day for the crew of U five seven six. Although irreversibly damaged, she would torpedo three ships the Nicaraguan ship, the Bluefields, the American cargo ship, the Chillorn, and the Panamanian ship J. A. Monickel. Bluefields promptly sank to the bottom of the Atlantic. Luckily, not a single person on board the ship was killed. After getting torpedoed, the Chillor attempted to escape and unintentionally ran into it not one, but two mines. No, it didn't sink. Nevertheless, this was not exactly a win by any means. The ship was still done for and had to be beached. By my count, two people on board the vessel would die in the attack. As for the JA, it didn't sink, though... Like its aforementioned contemporary in the Chillor, the J.A. Monicle would strike a mine after its torpedoing. In the chaos, two members of the Monicle's crew would lose their lives. As for the Monicle itself, she was badly damaged, but not critically damaged. She would actually return to service about ten months later. The end of the line would come for U-576 later that day during the chaos of its attack. At one point it surfaced in between its enemies. If you could believe it, that was not a good thing for the U-Boat. This resulted in sort of open season of firing on the sub. Oh, uh, and during all of this, it wasn't just the ships around it that it was fighting, but also in the form of nearby naval aircraft too. The aircrafts dropped multiple depth charges into the water. This is what supposedly did the U-Boat in. It sank, and sank, and sank. For well over an hour afterwards, depth charges and shots continued to be fired into the sea to make sure that the deed had indeed been done. Boy was it. Now, to be fair, this may have been what truly did in the sub. An article I read by the Washington Post offered the suggestion that during the commotion, the damaged U-boat intentionally sank to fake out its opponents. Only problem was, because of its aforementioned severe damage to its ballast tank, it couldn't surface. See, after the wreck had been found, it was scanned, and it was discovered that there wasn't really any battle damage on the sub, as well as the notion that it may have smacked into the bottom of the ocean, as hard as it had been claimed by some experts, whatever the case may have been the results were the same nonetheless. All 45 members of the crew of U-576 were killed in the sinking. To this day, their bodies, well, skeletons at this point, are still most likely entombed inside of the wreckage. In the above-mentioned scan, it was revealed that the subs hatches, all of the subs hatches to the outside, were sealed. Finding the remains of U-576, was a task that took 72 years to accomplish. Many conducted searches for the sunken vessel, but none succeeded prior to 2014. Hell, even the National Geographic unsuccessfully attempted to grab a piece of that action and search for the wreckage. Legally speaking, like the rest of the U-boat wrecks, it's owned by the government of Germany, but it is in the care of the United States government. What other secrets will be uncovered about U-576? Only time will tell, I guess. U-85 during her first patrol off the Icelandic coast, she encountered the British cargo ship, the Tislagen, to which she promptly torpedoed and sank. Three members of the Tislagen's 46 member crew would perish in the attack. Fortunately most of her crew would be rescued by nearby allied ships. Oh, and speaking of nearby allied ships, U-85 wasn't exactly unscathed from this endeavor either. She didn't lose any of her crew. But in the aftermath of her attacking, she was hit with depth charges from the nearby Canadian escorts the HMCS Skeena and the HMCS Alberni U85 was able to escape successfully mind you. It was later discovered in a test run that the depth charge attacks damaged her ability to dive. So back to port for her. Her second patrol in the Atlantic was nothing of note for either side, just inconsequential. Her third patrol was when business began to pick up. She was assigned to the North American East Coast between Nova Scotia and Newfoundland. In late January of 1943, the crew of U-8 encountered some other ship that they called a 10,000 ton steamer. They struck it once, according to her crew. That's all that's known about that. I couldn't find any correlating allied records that confirm this and I looked pretty hard. No idea if that was real or not. On February 9th of that same year, U85 encountered an allied cargo ship traveling alone in the Empire Fulsier. She promptly sank the freighter with a torpedo strike. Nine members of her crew perished, I believe. Afterwards, U-85 returned to her port. For her fourth patrol, she was assigned to patrol the waters of the U.S. East Coast. On April 10th, the Swedish cargo ship, the Kristina Kunsten, would sink after being torpedoed by U-85. Everyone on board that ship died. This was off the coast of New Jersey, by the way. Next! U85 set out for what would be its final location in North Carolina's Cape Hatteras 3 days after she had sunk the Christina Kunden U85 would sink herself in an attack by the USS Roper. The crew of the Roper gave this fight everything they had. They used machine guns, deck guns, depth charges at the U-boat. Eventually, she succeeded and there was no more sign of the U-boat. Every single one of her crew would perish as a result of the sinking. Most of them made it out of the sinking U-boat and were just swimming around in the water. Instead of rescuing the fallen crew, the USS Roper ignored them Out of fear that U-85 was part of a wolf pack, it wasn't. As a result, the crew of the USS Roper dropped depth charges into the water, which promptly killed the surviving crew members. Now, take note of her loss, U-85s. She was the first U-boat of Operation Drumbeat to fall, or at least one of the very first. I should also mention that U-85 was the only Type 7B U-boat sunk off the U-S East Coast during the war, these were very rare U-boat types anyway. I think that only 24 of them were ever made. The corpse of U-85, by the way, rests in just under 100 feet of water off the coast of North Carolina's Cape Hatteras, 14 miles east of the Oregon Inlet. if you want specifics. From what I've read, the visibility of this area isn't that great, but it's still manageable for divers that know what they're doing. Something I find super cool is that if you dive down to the wreck, you can still see the sub's torpedoes in their respective tubes. Wicked, huh? I've also heard that if you dive down to its conning tower, you can see the damage from her assault from the USS Roper's deck guns. Oh, and the wreckage was added to the National Register of Historic Places in the year 2015. Some of her crew members' bodies were salvaged from the water, then buried in the nearby Hampton National Cemetery. No, I haven't seen these graves personally, unlike the other ones. For any of you museumies out there, the Enigma machine and hatch recovered from U85 is on display at the graveyard of the Atlantic Museum in Hatteras Village, North Carolina, not too far away from the wreck. Yes, seriously, an actual Enigma machine. The history nerd in me is screaming. Do you know how rare these things are? These are one of the hardest artifacts to be able to find. So if you're ever in North Carolina, I highly recommend getting to go see this thing. U 521. During her time, at least four ships would fall victim to U 251. I got the most detail on these four, so I'm just going to talk about them. We'll start with the sad tale of the Harrington, which was a Royal Navy convoy ship that was struck by not one, but two U boats in U 521 and U 483 on November 2nd, 1943. Though U 521 is Generally credited as being the deciding factor in the sinking, 24 people would die in the attack. The next day, on the 3rd of November, 1942, the U.S. tanker ship Haria would fall to one of U-521's torpedoes. Three people perished in the assault. This was a few hundred miles south of Greenland. Just under a full 100 days later, on the 8th of February 1943, the HMT Breeden would be struck by a torpedo from 521, then sink off the coast of the Canary Islands. 41 out of her 43 strong crew would not survive. On March 17th or March 18th, 1943, I can't remember the exact date between the two, the Molly Pitcher, a U.S. Liberty ship, encountered U-521. It had previously encountered and survived a torpedo strike from another U-boat, but not this time. This time she sank. Out of her crew of 70 souls, 66 of them survived the sinking. Thankfully, this would mark the last time that U-521 sank a ship. She would meet her own maker on the date of June 2nd, 1943, off North Carolina's coast. In much the same way that the theme of Jaws played just before an attack, an ominous propeller sound was heard by the sub-sonar operator. Granted, a few minutes later, he reported that the sound had ceased. Now, in his cabin, U-521's Captain Klaus Bargestin, Bargston? We'll say Bargston was lying in his bed reading a book about travel. More specifically, and kind of ironically, the chapter he was reading was titled Middletown, USA. The next thing he knows, WHAM! A depth charge from the submarine chaser, the USS PC-565, or 2, had struck the U-boat. Lights went out. Glass shattered. Equipment refused to work. Water started entering the ship's control room. And fast. Klaus had no idea how damaged his vessel was, gave the order to dive. The sub's engineer quickly refused this order, citing, you know, the water pouring in. USS PC must have really wanted to desolate the U-boat, because on top of the multiple depth charges, it tried to ram the sub, fired many rounds at it and wouldn't let up. For good reason, yes. Remember, u boats were incredibly dangerous and very feared. Everyone knew this. During the chaos, Klaus gave the order for everyone to abandon ship. Out of a crew of 59 men, the only survivor was Klaus himself. For some reason, the German government at the time reported the rest of U-521's crew as missing in action. They were dead. Dead, dead. The remains of U-521 have yet to be discovered, though judging by its final coordinates, I think it's safe to say that the wreckage lies somewhere off the coast of North Carolina. It's only a matter of time before someone stumbles across it, whether intentionally or unintentionally. Think back for a moment to the story I had just told you of U550, how that was just discovered in 2012. So, I think it's safe to say that U521 will eventually find discovery too. Now, unfortunately, because no definitive wreck was found, there is a conspiracy theory out there claiming that U521 in fact did not sink. I don't believe that for a minute, neither should you. Have a listen to the things reported by a US minesweeper ship that was in the vicinity. A massive oil trail was spotted, along with a quote-unquote sizable chunk of human flesh. U-521 was definitely sunk, the only question left is, where is it? U-166 On the date of July 30th, 1942, The S.S. Robert E. Lee. Yep, that was a real ship's name. Imagine the backlash that would happen if the U.S. government named a ship that in our modern day. Be an interesting thing to see that I'd eat some popcorn and watch. Anyways, on July 30th, 1942, the SS Robert E. Lee cargo ship slash passenger ship, accompanied by a naval escort ship in the USS PC 566, was struck by a torpedo fired by a U boat, U 166. Right away, USS PC 566 attacked U 166 with depth charges. 166 had just kicked a killer bee's nest. Fast forward a couple hours later, the crew of PC 566 especially its captain Herbert Claudius, believed that they had in fact sunk the U-boat, a notion that history would later prove to be exactly correct. The Navy, however, did not. Instead of rewarding him for his actions, he was removed from his post, sent him to uh, one of their anti-submarine warfare schools. They claimed that U-166 would meet its doom two days after its attack on the Robert E. Lee in an aircraft attack. As for the aircraft attack, all I could find was the claims of a U-boat being there, and that's what they were attacking, not direct evidence. It wasn't until the sub's eventual discovery and investigation that Claudius was proven right. Shame Claudius had passed away in 1981, I would also like to mention the three other ships that became victims of U-166. On July 11, 1942, Dominican Republic sailboat, the Carmen, was sunk by the guns of U-166. One person died. Two days later, the American cargo ship, the Onida, was sunk by a torpedo from U-166, Just off Cuba's coast, 23 people were rescued, six perished. Three days later, on the 16th of July, the Gertrude, an American fishing vessel, was also sunk by one of U-166's guns. Luckily, no one was hurt seriously in this attack. The wreckage of U-166 was discovered in 2001 during a pipeline survey conducted by two marine biologists for the Shell Company. They, and everyone else, knew that the U-boat was still somewhere in that area. Just not where, 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 where. Anyway, when they surveyed the site, they initially believed they found the Alaka Puritan, a massive U.S. tanker ship that was torpedoed and sank by a U-boat. Not our U-boat, but rather U-507. It wasn't too long before they realized that's when the gears started turning in their heads. That's when they realized exactly what they were looking at. Look them up later, Dan Warren and Rob Church. There's this fascinating little article on PBS's website with them talking about locating the wreckage, the wreckage itself, U166's story. It's it's great stuff, you'll like it. The wreckage sits in over 5,000 feet of water nearest to the coast of Louisiana, more specifically about 45 miles south of the mouth of the Mississippi River. The SS Robert E. Lee and U-166's respective wreckages lie within a mile of one another. It's almost, I don't know, poetic? That the two enemies will forever remain near each other like that? Anyways, now obviously unlike the other U-boat wrecks that we cover today, this one's not accessible to any diver. no. To get this deep requires the usage of a submersible. Sometimes scientists will dive down to the wreck and film the endeavor. You should look it up on YouTube. It's really quite the breathtaking viewing. Turn off all the lights and just have full screen on your computer with that. Oh, it's marvelous. You'll love it. Oh, and uh, Robert Ballard himself got to dive down to the wreck a couple of times, actually. If you are unfamiliar with his work, Ballard is the man who first found the Titanic's wreckage in 1985. Pretty cool, huh? Unrelated sidebar. There is a U-boat, U-2513, wreck about 70 or so miles away from the Key West, but it was not sunk during World War II, therefore I do not count it as part of Operation Drumbeat here. It has never even saw any form of combat during the war. (laughs) You're just lucky I like to babble on and on about history. Anyways, in 1945, it was surrendered to the United States Navy. In their possession, she would be used to travel up and down, up and down, up and down the United States East Coast. It was personally visited once by President Harry Truman in 1946. She was deliberately sunk during a rocket test by the U.S. Navy in 1951. She rests in about 213 feet of water. Not a goddamn clue why you'd want to just get rid of the thing. U-2513 could have made an excellent museum ship like its counterpart in Chicago. In a manner of speaking, Operation Drumbeat was kind of a win for the Germans. Over 400 Allied ships would meet their end during Operation Drumbeat. By my estimate, somewhere between 5,000 and 6,000 Allied citizens had been killed in the operation. Now, that's more than double the 2,400 plus lives lost in the Pearl Harbor attacks. Unsurprisingly, this was a massive embarrassment for the United States Navy, who proceeded to cover it up by censoring local journalists who would have reported on many of the attacks, though other journalists initially refused to tell the public about the attacks, believing it would cause mass panic. We'll get to that in a minute. As for the regular people who saw the attacks or things about the attacks, they were strongly advised not to tell anyone. To be fair, however, there was another reason why they might have done that in censoring news of the attacks. The war, as I mentioned, was, and at the time, seen as a foreign conflict that we were involved in. The thought that the Germans were right at our doorstep was a pretty terrifying notion to think about. If Operation Drumbeat became widely known to the public, panic would ensue, as some of the aforementioned journalists feared too. So, were Navy officials just trying to cover their own asses? Stop the spread of mass hysteria? Or both? I'll let you be the judge on that one. Now, I'm trying to say it in a different way than just boldly saying that it was all the Navy's fault, because it wasn't, and it kind of was. During the early half of 1942, they left the shores of the East Coast relatively unguarded, probably due to the fact that there was a world war going on, and ships were needed quite a lot of elsewhere, though this was still a major mistake on their part either way. They knew what was happening pretty early on, but they were slow to do, well, anything in response for a while. The Navy was also desperately ill-equipped in their ships at the start of the US involvement in the war. Now much of the ships that they had at their disposal were being used in the war's pacific ring. Operation Drumbeat came to an end, well, I shouldn't say that, we'll say major subduing once the Navy and Air Force started moving more planes and ships to the east coast. Didn't fully stop it, as you saw, it didn't end until the war itself had reached its conclusion. What was often reported to the public was that the U.S. Navy had sunk many U-boats, even if they didn't. Propaganda, huh? Anyways, blame for the massive amounts of ruin caused by Operation Poke and is alleged by many historians to also lie in the hands of the American public at the time, too. See, many major cities outwardly refused or were slow to adapt to voluntarily blackout their lights at night. A blackout would keep the waters off the coast, dark, and make allied ships less easy to spot by U-boats. Coast lights can travel farther than you realize. I think I read somewhere that they could be spotted 30 miles off coast or something along those lines. Anyway, the city's reasoning, amongst a few other things, was that it would have had a negative impact on their tourism revenue. No idea who on earth is going on vacation in a world war, especially World War II, but hey. Remember a moment ago when I said that the Navy, and by extension, the government was slow to respond to Operation Drumbeat? That same notion applies here too, because the government did not force these cities into blackouts until a few months into Operation Drumbeat. Now, I'm not going to say that everyone in the American public at the time didn't know about the U-boats just off their shores, because that's just not true. Many knew the Germans were there. I remember hearing about a story off the coast of North Carolina, where a father and son had ventured out to sea in their fishing boat, and almost crashed right into a surfacing U-boat. No one got hurt in the endeavor thankfully, but it must have been quite the spook can you imagine? Occasionally, people would find things such as oil residue, or in the incredibly rare cases, thing from ships sunk by U-boats. Some were afraid that the U-boat crews would make it onto their shores and infiltrate their communities as spies. Believe it or not, that's not as foreign of an idea as one might think. There were instances of Germans entering allied countries, like the US and Great Britain, as spies. In June of 1942, the crew of U-boat 202 snuck ashore into New York State as spies, though that's a story to tell another time. Fascinating story, though. This episode's already long enough. Oh, and of those individual stories of various U-boats we talked about, those are just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to drumbeat. For example, at least 20 other U-boats were known to have ventured into the Gulf of Mexico during this time, just over there. Perhaps I should also make mention to you that various major East Coast ports such as Boston, New York, and Chesapeake Bay were mined to hell by various U-boats. There's so much I wasn't able to get to with this episode because the story and stories of Operation Drumbeat were just that numerous. Perhaps one day, if you guys really like this episode, I'll return for another go at telling more of Drumbeat stories. Let me know if you guys would like to see that. Thank you so, 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 so much for watching, guys. I really hope you enjoyed today's episode. I have a very, very Special topic coming at you guys next week, when we take a look at the poetic pursuits of one Joseph Stalin. Yes, that Joseph Stalin. If you really, 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 really liked what you just heard today, please consider supporting me over on my Patreon page. I publish exclusive articles every week about some of the weirdest and coolest things from the pages of history, as well as daily historical facts you will love. Trust me, if you're a fan of my work here, you are going to love my work over on Patreon. And it's only $5 a month and it helps out the show a lot. You help me, I help you with exclusive content. If you really liked what you just saw, and would just like to leave a one-time tip, please consider checking out my Buy Me a Coffee page, Just Forgotten History Nerds. That's its name, Forgotten History Nerds. Anyway, thanks a bunch. I've been MV Ginzali and remember to always read in between the lines.